Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Today, we have a skeleton crew, but mighty nonetheless. This is Amy Gunn, and I am joined by Liz Lenovey. And today, our topic is going to be trial preparation. And interestingly, the reason why we are low on hosts today is because a lot of us are in trial or in trial prep. Ever since the COVID restrictions have been lifted on our courts, at least our firm and many of the folks that I speak to have had back-to-back trial dates set some of which resolve, but some of them don't. So we have just been in trial mode, it feels like, for weeks now, and we'll continue that way, I think, all the way through the summer. So we thought it would be a timely discussion to talk about how to prepare for trial. And I put together a little bit of a chart, starting with what to do about 60 days out. Liz and I do a lot of medical malpractice, so that's sort of our reference for the most part. But I think this works on a lot of negligence claims, whether it's slip and fall, product liability, et cetera. And 60 days out, what I like to do is just make sure that I have everything scheduled on the calendar. And that would include reviewing all the pretrial deadlines, making sure I don't have any conflicts for the week of trial making sure that our experts who are likely coming in from out of town don't have any conflicts. Our practice is to send a letter to our experts just as soon as the trial is set, which is typically way more than two months beforehand. But it's good practice to confirm with those experts they're still available. Liz, with about two months out, what kind of things do you like to confirm or have top of mind? I think that two months out is a good time to do just sort of a general overview of everything you've got in the case. And that goes from what medical records do we have? What discovery have we been given? Is our exhibit list started? What depositions are in the case? Who all are the witnesses? I think what oftentimes happens is litigation goes over such a long period of time, sometimes you forget who was even deposed in the case or who these witnesses are or what these different experts, what their expertise even is. So it's so helpful to have a plan in place to make sure that the file is neat and in order and sort of just get that stress off of your back and making sure that just everything is where it needs to be. Because the worst feeling is when you are in the middle of trying to prepare for your direct or your cross or your open or whatever it is that you're trying to do or get your jury instructions ready or your motions eliminate and you can't find something, an important document. It drives me crazy if I can't locate something quickly. And I think that that's really two months out, you are just sort of laying out the plan going forward. The planning is so important and it usually includes the team. So a lot of times you think about trying the case and it's just you and what do you need to do, but you're really doing a disservice to the case if you're not delegating the assignments whether it's the exhibit list to your paralegal or to all the communications with the clients and the experts to your assistant, it has to be set out. So then that brings us to about 30 days out. And this is starting to enter the red zone because again, you really want to make sure you have everything in place that you can stuff into your brain in time for the trial. 
And one of the things that must be done is to be aware of what pretrial hearing is happening, when it's happening, and what has to be done before that pretrial hearing. Every judge has a different pretrial hearing philosophy. Every judge has a different pretrial order. What items are due? When do they have to be exchanged? How soon in advance of trial? So it's imperative to sit down again with your team 30 days out and say, okay, where are we on our motions in limine? Do the jury instructions have to be filed beforehand or can I just show up with them at trial? And Liz, I know you spend a lot of time on those issues as well. How do you handle them? I think the most efficient way to handle them is sort of going back to that 60 days and doing your general overview and figuring out what's in the case, what are the issues in the case. What I like to do after I take a deposition or after there's some big discovery production is dictate a memo where I talk about the issues that came up in the deposition or whatever document I received. And within that memo, include a couple notes about whether I think this is something that I'm going to need to worry about at pretrial. So in my memos, I have a little section that says, you know, maybe I need to draft a motion and eliminate on this. And it just reminds me of what I might eventually need to do when we're at this red zone, as you've described it. <laughs> and so that's really helpful to just sort of figure out what are my issues in the case? What do I need to get before the court? You also mentioned pretrial orders. And because we've had these back-to-back-to-back cases, we've gotten to see multiple different judges and their different ways of handling pretrial. And some judges, like you said, are incredibly detailed and will have very lengthy orders on when everything is due and what exactly needs to be done and what time they want to do. I mean, there are some judges that say it needs to be in by 4 p.m. on this date. And then some judges don't issue them at all. And so you don't know when the deadline for that particular document is going to need to be filed. And so I think in those situations, it's important to figure out, okay, if there is no specific order in place, I need to reach out to opposing counsel and we need to get that figured out. We need to have some sort of standing order because, you know, we recently had this where I think it sort of fell through where there was no specific deadline. And you and I kind of set our own deadline just out of respect for the court, making sure that the court had enough time to review our documents for pretrial, but the other side never filed anything. (laughs) And in this particular case, it's settled. So it ultimately didn't matter. But you and I were talking about, is anything going to get filed? And that puts us in a really weird position. Of course, we want to be deferential to the court and make sure that we're giving the court enough time to actually sit down, print out, review our documents and be prepared to rule on these issues when we eventually get to trial. But it's also a bit of a strategic disadvantage because now the other side knows what we're worried about and what we want to talk about. We still don't know what they want to do. But definitely having a plan in place with your opposing counsel and making sure everyone's on the same page is really important. The other thing that I like to do, and it sort of is a bit of a checklist for me, I do have different items and I'll sit down and I'll write out my own checklist for individual cases because I know different cases will require different motions, will have different issues. And so before I start working on everything, I will sit down and create little checklists, making sure I'm getting all the motions eliminate done, all these various motions. And in Missouri, we have certain motions that we need to file like use of technology in the courtroom. 
And you need to check your local rules to see if that's something that that court requires, if it's a specific document you need to fill out. So that's something important. If you're going to plan on using any type of technology in the courtroom, which I think in 2022, we all are at this point, that's something you need to check on. In Missouri, we also have motions for if you want to ask any types of questions about insurance to make sure that there's no conflict of interest with any of the jurors related to any of the potential insurance carriers that could possibly be taking a hit if there's a verdict for the plaintiff in the case. You have to submit on that specific type of motion. Additionally, you also need to submit on litigation history questions in Missouri, and you need to present the specific questions you plan on asking in your voir dire. Again, this is all so that we can get around these issues and it's not going to be a big deal during the voir dire and you don't have to worry about your opposing counsel jumping up and making a big deal about it. You've already handled it at pretrial. Another motion you might need to file in Missouri, at least, is to determine medical bills and the cost of medical expenses. Another thing you have to do if you are practicing in Missouri, and of course, make sure you're following whatever rules are in your particular jurisdiction or venue. But in Missouri, we have to file what is called a certificate of filing, and that has to be done 30 days before trial. And basically what what you have to do is provide a list of all of the medical bills or medical records that you intend to submit at trial. And that's because this is how you get around the whole issue of the business record, right? Because it's technically hearsay. These documents are technically considered hearsay. So in order to get around that issue, you submit your certificate of filing showing that you have an affidavit where someone representing the business has attested that these are accurate documents that for medical bills, it's reasonable and fair. The affidavit is to create the business record exception to the hearsay rule. And it has to be signed by the custodian of records for the particular business, as you stated. In our world, it's almost always medical bills and records. It's most acutely important for the medical bills. And it goes back to the billed versus paid, which again is particular to Missouri. My affidavit with the medical bills rebuts the presumption that the only amount that comes in is the amount paid. My affidavit of the medical bills is proof of the amount charged, and that's the larger amount, and that's the amount that I want in. But if I don't follow the certificate of filing statute and the business record exception to hearsay, that is a barrier to getting those amount charged in, in that way. That's the easiest way to get it in. So it's critically important if you want to ask the jury for the full amount of the medical bills charged. And it's due 30 days beforehand. And you have to file all the affidavits and a disc with all of the records as well to the other side and to the court. It's a very technical statute. I would encourage everybody to read it and follow it to T. And then obviously the motions in limine. What are the specific evidentiary issues or just general issues that you want to keep the other side from talking about because it is prejudicial to your case. And there's a couple items that are on all of the motions in limine we file, right? The lottery example. That's on every single motion in limine we file. We don't want the defense attorney standing in front of the jury and saying, you know, the plaintiff's really going to hit the lottery with this case. And I've never had anyone fight me on that one. Right. That seems to be one that everyone's in agreement on. But then there can be really specific things. If your client has had some criminal history, that might be something you want to keep out. If there is a, an unrelated medical injury that is is completely irrelevant to the case, but might otherwise prejudice the jury against your client, that's something that you need to keep in mind. So there's a lot of moving parts. And I think 
really the best way to handle that 30 days out is to make sure you have a plan at that 60 days out. I agree. Additionally, to the pretrial filings, internally, I think by 30 days out, you really should have read and done your own summaries of all of the depositions. And the case that Liz, you and I have coming up, we've divvied up the witnesses. So I'm taking some and you're taking some, but I'm still going to read and outline in my own way all of the witnesses because I need to know the entire case. And I know you're doing the same thing. So even maybe 30 days out, even if you're divvying up witnesses, I think it's incumbent upon you, if you're going to be at trial, first chair, second chair, third chair, whatever, you really should be familiar with all the key witnesses and the key testimony. One of the things that I like to do that have found very helpful is summarizing the key testimony. I'm a thinker where I start big. I start with all the information, smash it into my brain. And as time goes on, as we get closer to trial, I whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down to just the most important things and hope that a lot of the other extraneous stuff kind of stays in my brain in case it pops up. But I can't not have the key things in front of me because there's so many things going on in your mind that even something you think, oh, I'll never forget that page number on that testimony, you might forget it. So you have to have it, at least I have to have it in front of me. So I have put together what I call a testimony chart. It's a very standard chart with the witnesses' names, and then I pick categories of information. So in a typical MedMal, it's gonna be standard of care, which is liability, causation, and damages. And usually within one or two of those broad categories are a number of sub-issues. For example, in causation, if you just say causation, that chart's going to be long and it's barely worth having it because it's going to be too long. The idea is to summarize it. But if you break it down into subparts, the timing of the injury or the mechanism of the injury, and I dig into every deposition and I pull out that key testimony. And that way, if something comes up at trial, if it's an issue, whether it's a pretrial argument or an objection during trial, opening, whatever, I've got this chart. So I can go to Dr. Jones and his testimony on causation. And I can look at my summary because, for example, if he's a defense witness, if he's on the stand and he starts talking about potential causes of the injury that I've never heard of, I have to be ready to go argue that this is a new opinion, which most likely would have been discussed as a pretrial motion to eliminate. You can't have new opinions for the first time at trial. So I pull up my chart and I carry it with me everywhere. I don't go anywhere without it during the trial. And I'll flip to it and I'll say, he never said this. He never said this. You also want the deposition transcript and go to the index and look for keywords and they're not in there. If I didn't have that chart that I put together, then I would be worried that I just didn't remember. Maybe I just didn't remember that the expert had said that in his deposition. So that's key. And in my experience, the best way to do that is to read those depositions a couple of times, outline them, and then put the key things into the chart. The other important thing to do is an order of proof. And that is where you literally have another chart. I'm a chart kind of gal. And put what happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
and fill it in. Voir dire, opening, Dr. Jones, plaintiff, video deposition of Dr. Whoever. And that is going to be fluid because you don't know exactly how long things are going to take. But you have to have an idea because you need to arrange for your expert to come in on a certain night and put the logistics together for the hotel. You have to get that put together. And this is, if I'm lucky, it's 30 days out, but realistically, it's whenever you can get to it. I read all of the medical records again. And in this case we have coming up, there's like 8,000 pages from a hospital chart. And I am going to lay eyes on every single one of them. Why might you ask? You just never know what you're missing. And after you've read all the depositions again, you're going to have a better idea. You're even going to firm up your theory of the case, much less the defense's theory of the case, which you may not have known the first time you read those medical records or even the second time because the defense experts hadn't been deposed yet. So now with the knowledge of exactly what my theory is and exactly what the defense theory is, I go back through those records and you can always find something to support your case or not, (laughs) or tear down the defense. I mean, it has never failed me, never. And the best part about that is, I mean, I guess if you're lucky, the other side hasn't gone through them quite with a fine tooth comb, but sometimes you can find, you know, page 2,344 and it's part of the record of the case and you pull it out at trial and you've set up the expert and it's right there. I mean, it can be magical. So if you don't go back and reread those medical records or whatever important documents are in your case, you might miss that opportunity. I couldn't agree more. And I don't think it's exactly as you've described it, but it was a similar experience. What we have in this case we've got coming up where I actually needed to go take the deposition of the treating doctor. I reviewed all the medical records again, and I had done the medical record summary initially when this first came in. And then I went back and I read through all the depositions again, and suddenly it just made so much more sense. Our theory of the case, their theory of the case, what I needed to focus on, the really important lines. And there was so much more information I could pull out from those records that I could then use and utilize effectively, I think, in that treating doctor's deposition. So I think that this is an important thing to recognize that as attorneys, no matter how smart we think we are, We will never fully understand these records the first time they come through because we didn't go to medical school. Most of us have never gone to medical school. We didn't go to nursing school. We're not going to have as good of an understanding of the medicine. And that applies to really any type of case you could have, a products case, you know, if it's a premises case, whatever. You're never going to understand it as good as whoever you have hired and probably paid a lot of money to understand it for you. So use that information to your benefit and then go back and try to teach it to yourself. I mean, it really is an opportunity to educate yourself on oftentimes really complicated topics. And it would be such a disservice to not use full advantage of that. To me, it becomes more clear every time I read the records and then you fold in maybe some research on the anatomy and then you fold in your expert's deposition and then you go back and read the records again. And every time you do that, it's like you're polishing a car. It just gets more clear, more bright, and you understand it better. One of the things that you should be doing in any injury case is illustrations that you have to teach the jury the anatomy, whether it's a broken bone or a spine issue, a gastrointestinal, a brain, you have to teach the anatomy. 
Because as you say, we're not doctors. Typically, jurors aren't doctors. But as personal injury attorneys, it's our job to not only almost become doctors ourselves, but teach about the anatomy and why our theory makes sense if you use the common sense approach and show the jury why it works. So I usually spend time before I depose defense experts really digging in and just, I mean, Googling. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's what I do. (laughs) You Google it. We subscribe to a couple of medical references, and I've always used an illustration book written by Dr. Netter. This is old school, but it's a color glossary almost of the anatomy, and that has always been kind of my go-to as well. Just talking about the anatomy is never going to be as good as illustration. So you and I were just talking about getting some good illustrations together. And some of it you can find online. It's not copyrighted. Sometimes you have the funds in the case, if you will. The value of the case will support hiring a company to put together 3D illustrations or even just blow-ups of the anatomy, color blow-ups of the anatomy. The other thing that you can't forget to do, if you have any imaging in the case, any imaging, whether it's an x-ray or CT scan, you have to have it and look at it, view it. View it with your expert, see if it can be helpful. I don't think I've ever failed the opportunity to take a scan, put it in front of the jury, and point out what we're talking about, whether it's a fracture or an area of ischemia or a mass on the pancreas. If you can show the jury something that you haven't created that didn't come from an expert, but that is your client's own imaging and pointed out, they're never going to forget it. And you've got the evangel going first. So if you can show something on a scan that the jury is like, oh, I see that. Now they believe it. And by the time the defense gets to it and says, oh, that's not what Amy says or Dr. Jones says, I don't know. I think the jury has already bought into it. So you have to look at all the imaging and figure out the best way that that's going to help your case. Now, moving forward, after you've reviewed everything, talked to everybody, got everything logistically put together, what do you do, let's say a week before trial? One to two weeks before trial, when do you start outlining your direct examinations or your opening? When do you start all that? It depends on the size of the case, obviously. I mean, you and I were in a really complicated medical malpractice case with John a couple months ago. And that one, I felt like we had a 120-day meeting, a 90-day meeting, a 60-day meeting. Oh, we did. (laughs) There was so much planning because there were so many experts in the case. That's something that it couldn't wait 30 or 60 days out. But if you've got a car accident case and maybe you've got one expert, you can prep your client the night before. That might be something that you only need a couple of days to get ready for. But I think oftentimes in the types of cases we have, which are medical malpractice cases that by their very nature are complicated, medicine's complicated, you need to give yourself at least one to two weeks depending on the number of experts, again, to sit down and start preparing your directs. You don't want to be sitting there the night before you're putting your witness on, finally starting on your direct. Maybe you go in and tweak it, sure, but you want to at least have the bare bones of whatever outline you're going to use ready. I think the other important thing, and I don't know what your personal preference is on this, I like to do my opening last. 
I like to get my directs done and my crosses done and then work on my opening because then by the time I've gotten my cross and my directs done, I feel like I know the case really well. And I feel like I'm in a better position to present the opening in a concise, effective way. And we've done an episode on opening statements a couple seasons ago at this point. But I mean, that's something that I'm getting ready to do right now for the trial we've got coming up is preparing an opening. I like to use a PowerPoint. It goes to what you were talking about earlier with illustrations and showing things to the jury. I think you also have to keep in mind that different jurors are going to be different learning types and you're going to have some people that are visual learners. So you need to speak to them as well and make sure that you're utilizing whatever you can to at least get that point across in the opening, recognizing that nothing you say in opening is considered evidence technically. But I think that that's a good opportunity to start putting up some of your plaintiff's imaging. In this particular case I'm thinking about a couple months ago, one of the big issues was telemetry records. How fast was this man's heart going? And eventually, when did it start to slow down? And when did it stop? And he flatlined. And of course, the question in that case was, why did he flatline? And we said it was because of negligence. The other side said other theories. Whatever we said it was, (laughs) it wasn't. (laughs) Whatever she says is wrong. (laughs) Right. I was wrong. They were right. But I think that that was a great opportunity to build the timeline And that's what's really important in these types of cases, in medical malpractice in particular, I feel, is the timeline and showing this is when our patient came into the hospital and this is when this surgery started and this is when she first started having a symptom and then this eventually happened and now we're at this point with the revision surgery or they're dead or whatever the case may be. It's also a great opportunity to introduce the jury to maybe some of the more complicated words or phrases that they're going to hear, at least giving them maybe like a dictionary or an index so that when the word comes up for the first time when the experts on the stand, they've already got an idea of what you're talking about. Well, you were saying a few minutes ago about the illustrations and their PowerPoints. That brings up the technology issue because you can't walk into trial with a PowerPoint and suddenly recognize you have no idea how to play it <laughs> or no equipment to play it or right. no one to help you play it. So I think most of us recognize now, as you said, technology is everywhere but it has to work right and you have to be efficient at it. So you do have to reach out to various companies to make sure that you're on the schedule and then take a moment to talk to that technologist and make sure he or she knows exactly what you want and have that person explain to you how it's going to happen. But juries and particular judges don't love delays when you can't figure out your technology. And that is just the worst feeling, like the heat coming up your neck when your technology doesn't work is not helpful. All right. So we have covered pre-trial motions. We've covered outlining and summarizing depositions and opening. I like to draft my voir dire about a week before. I think part of it is that at this point, there are many, many questions in voir dire that get asked at every trial. And so I'm not ashamed to say that I cut and paste my voir dire from previous MedMal trials. Now, I always, always go through it, add a few things, recognize the issues that are particular to this case. And because of that, I feel like I can save it until the week before because I don't have to keep going over it, polish it, polish it. It's in pretty good shape, quite frankly. Do you write a close before you start trial? No. If you write your close before you start a trial, you're doing it wrong. You're wasting your time. I have in the past had some really key points, some really key phrases that you kind of a little 
find in depositions, find along the way key medical records, and I'll keep a folder or I'll keep a list. But as far as really drafting it, I do not. And even then you can ask yourself, should you even draft a close? And the answer is yes. In my opinion, yes. Don't read it. Don't look at the notes, but you better draft it. To me, that's a way to learn it. But I agree, you can't do it ahead of time. You can think about it, but if you are actually drafting your clothes, it ain't going to be that. It ain't going to go in that way. So you are kind of wasting your time. Now, kind of more on the logistics side of things. I think if you have experts coming in, you got to make sure someone's covered the hotel, the transportation, both getting to your city and in and around your city. When are we prepping? What time are they coming in? How are they getting back to the office? Where are you prepping? Is there going to be food there? You will not have time and you don't have time to worry about those kind of things. So this is a great thing to go over with your staff. But a month before time, a week before time, you can certainly ask and confirm that someone else is taking care of it. I also think this is a little bit old school, but I practice. I practice my opening. I practice those things. And I do that. That's kind of how I'm filling my time the weekend before. The weekend before really is 30,000 foot kind of things, polishing, psyching yourself up, talking to other people, and really just getting your confidence up. But I have a couple of in general to-dos. You ready? Yes. Okay. Take care of yourself. I know we're the last person on the list because <laughs> everything's on your shoulders and you got to get it done. Take care of yourself. Don't drink too much. Clear your calendar. You can't leave that to chance. Prepare your family. If you are new to the profession or new to doing trials in your career, you got to tell your family, look, I love you. I'm not going to see you. I need you to be prepared for me not coming home for, you know, a week before trial and then the week of trial. I need you to cover this. I need someone to make sure this gets done. Please don't forget to feed the cat. You have to plan for your absence because the last thing you want is anxiety at home because, you know, your family wasn't sure what to expect. Even now, 25 years in, I will sit down and say, okay, these are the trials I have set. It means that this weekend when we have this family party, I can't go. I need you to be okay with that. I don't want to be, you know, worried that you're upset with me because I can't make it. So I have these conversations even 25 years in because you don't want that extra anxiety. You need to sleep. Be aware of what you're staff is doing and make sure that your staff understands that they will be running the show while you're in trial. Donna and I, I'm like, I need you to cover everything this week. You got it? Yeah, I got it. And thank you for covering everything this week. It's nice to recognize that you're not in it alone and that you can't do it alone. But to me, the part I like the most is sitting silently in my office and reading testimony and visualizing my cross-examination and reading it more and referencing and reading the articles that are referenced and figuring out that hook. That's the fun part. The stressful part is making sure, oh, the witness has a flight. Oh, there's going to be lunch this week. There's some place to park. What am I going to wear? And that is always a fun topic, but it's true. You better pick out what you're going to wear because again, 
the idea is the morning of trial, if you're spending 20 minutes because you didn't pick out what skirt goes with what top or what pair of pants goes with what shoes, you're wasting valuable time. So I put together, I have little pull-out poles in my closet, and I will put, <laughs> this is silly, but I put clothes in order. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Also, haircuts and nails, Liz, right? <laughs> This is true. No, it is true. And I remember one of the first trials I did with you, I was just so hyper-focused on the trial, though, where I had ignored what my nails looked like. And then I had to go up there. And we had an Elmo at the time, which means when I put a document up there, my hand slide underneath the projector and it goes up onto the wall or the screen for the jury to see. Everyone can see just how absolutely jacked my nails look. And I remember apologizing to the jury going, I'm so sorry, <laughs> like pulling my hands away in shame because they looked gross because I wasn't paying attention to myself. And I said, OK, I can't do that anymore. I need to make sure just ahead of time, maybe the Friday or Saturday morning or something. Treat yourself. Just go get them fixed. One thing we didn't talk about is jury research. Now, in most of the jurisdictions that we practice, we don't get jury lists terribly far in advance of the trial. But if you're lucky enough to be somewhere where you could have it even the Friday before, you got to put away time to go through those jury lists. And man, there's so many layers of things we can do now with social media and researching. You can do it yourself. You can hire a company. You can be almost as sophisticated as money will allow for this. And that would depend on the value of the case, what you can spend on that, because it can be expensive. But you have to spend some time on looking at the list ahead of time, figuring out who you think your jurors should be, who you want your jurors to be. So those are just some overviews of what we go through and are currently going through quite a bit on trial prep. I know that we haven't covered every single thing to do as you're preparing for trial, but Liz and I hope that we have hit the high points and given you some food for thought. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We would love to hear your comments, write and review at heelsinthecourtroom.law. We'll see you next Wednesday. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.